Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia, home of the world's greatest artist, TLC, Gladys Knight, India Ari, Indigo Girls, and Hartsfield Atlanta Jackson Airport, the Falcons, and Clark Atlanta University. This is The Bright Side with Technicia, a daily show with real people with real experiences. And now, here's your host, Technicia. Welcome to the Bright Side with Technicia. I'm your host, Technicia, and today is Thursday, September 14, 2017. Happy Thursday, my millionaires out there, because we are millionaire-minded. We are always staying focused and keeping motivated. I love my affirmations, because you know the point of affirmations is whatever you put into thought goes into action, but you got to put in positivity. And we do, and I do the affirmations because I want to put good out into the world, into the universe, whoever I connect with, I want them to see that positivity too as well. I am so ready for this show to begin. I have a young lady coming on who I interviewed before, and she's from Harvard University. Um, Oh, sorry, y'all. My back is... Itching. Have you ever just had one of those days where your back just itch and feel like you about to just scratch your own skin off? That's me right now. Just scratch, 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 scratch. <laughs> but anyhow, while we wait on my special guest and when I give you an introduction when it's time for her to come on, I'm going to hit you with some tunes. So you make sure that you don't touch that dial, baby, because we are going to be talking up a thing or two. Gonna make a change for once in my life. It's gonna feel real good. Gonna make a difference. Gonna make it right. As I turn up the collarbone, my favorite winter code. The wind is blowing my mind. I see the in the street. Not enough to eat. Who am I to be blind? Pretending not to see them. Yeah, it's way. 
All right, you were listening to Michael Jackson, the man in the mirror. We all got to make a change in our life. But either we're going to make change for the better or you're going to make change for the worse. Because in life, life, you either live or you die. It's always a choice in life, and that's what we have to do. We got to choose either the good or the bad. You got to choose one or the other. You can't do both. You got to do, do one or the other. You got to believe in God or you either believe in Satan. It's one or the other. But anyhow, I am honored to have this young lady back on because in June 2014, I had the pleasure and the honor of interviewing her on my program as a youth and health wellness advocate and a radio host. She is coming back to me with more information. And this young lady, she also attends Harvard University. She attends Harvard University. She is currently a junior there. She studied human developmental and regenerative biology, biology. Excuse me. She continues to be passionate about scientific research and has fully developed interest in health disparities in rural health care. She also found and co-hosts the Polylog program on Harvard Radio Broadcasting. In addition, in addition, she is a contributor to a forthcoming book project, Be the Star You Are. For millennia, in which youth shares about finding our way in this evolving world, and we will be glad to give her email address if you want to further contact her on that. But Hannah, thank you so much for being back on the show. It is an honor, it's a pleasure to have you again. Hello, thank you so much. It's totally my honor and my pleasure. I'm I'm a fan of the program. I love the work you do. And I think it's so great to have a platform for these positive conversations. It's my pleasure to be back. I tell you one thing, you can tell by your voice that you have really grown. You have really <laughs> blossomed. And I'm so proud of your endeavors that you are conquering. You're now a junior at Harvard University. So what is it like at Harvard? Is it is it really like we really <laughs> thinking, you know, because I know it's one of the Ivy one of the Ivy League schools, but um, it's never too hard. You just have to always put in the work, right? Well, first of all, it's, it's, I think it's amazing that you said my voice has matured. Uh, I think it's been about four years since appearing on mm-hmm. your program. It's it's just terrific to see this lapse of time that went on. And um, I, that's right. I'm currently a junior at Harvard, and Harvard is great. <laughs> I think, you know, I grew up in California in a very agricultural part of California, and college was the first time I really got to pick up, pack up my bags, and move 3,000 miles away to a totally different area with a totally different culture, a totally different climate. So it's been very interesting um, to look at everything that's so different here compared to where I grew up. But it's been a blessing completely. Um, I've met some of the most incredible people here. You know, some of my roommates do amazing things. And it's just an honor and an absolute blessing for me to be in this environment where young leaders are really taking the world by its horns and starting amazing businesses and pursuing their passions in really incredible ways. And I'm just so, so happy to kind of be in this mix and to see it all around me. It really inspires me to see what my peers are doing. Um, and, and it, and it reminds me that young people today have so much potential. Um, so I, I've been having a terrific time. I'm entering my third year now. Um, our semester just started. I actually just got out of class about an hour ago. So <laughs> it, it's been great. I'm very, very blessed. Oh, well, I'm glad. I'm glad for you. It's been a journey. I mean, from the last time we talked, we were talking about health and wellness. And now 
you actually broadcasting your own radio show, and you actually found mm-hmm. it. Yeah, so yeah. You, so the last time we you, on, um, let's right. talk about that a little bit, um, Hannah, because you found this program called Polylog, and in a case most people would think of it, they'll probably proceed on the basis of knowing the words dialogue and take from that relating to a conversation between mm-hmm. two or more people. Let's elaborate on the meaning of it. Absolutely. So you're, you're totally correct in, in understanding the etymology of the word. Um, it's, it's a combination of poly and log. So we have log in terms of conversation. Um, and then poly means many. So typically we hear the word dialogue, which is a conversation between two people. Or we, in, people who are in performance and theater and stage might be familiar with the term monologue, which is a one-person sort of conversation um, where that one person kind of projects it out there. And then a dialogue is between two people. And polylog is, is a conversation between many people. And, and that's really the aim of the program, to, to involve everybody in, in, the, in the content of the program, from our listeners um, to who make recommendations for guests to the multiple guests that come on the program and then me with my co-host. It's really about sparking diet, conversation from all different aspects and, and gathering many different perspectives. And so this program is part of Harvard Radio Broadcasting. And just saying that is incredible for me because the last time I spoke with you, um, I had just sort of begun my radio journey, and I was the host of a show called Express Yourself on the Be The Star You Are. Um, it was a, an outreach service of the Be The Star You Are charity, and it was broadcast on the Voice America Network. And that was kind of my foray, my first foray into radio. It's amazing to be sitting here four years later and have my program on Harvard Radio Broadcasting. And we broadcast on 95.3 FM Cambridge, and we stream live on whrb.org. And it's really the aim of the the program, as I said, was to gather many different perspectives at the hence why it's called Polylog, and to really showcase how incredible the youth of today are. So on this program, I invite, you know, my peers, I invite you to do really amazing things, starting businesses, traveling the world. Um, It's really just an incredible way to get kind of a slice of life of what it's like to be a young person in this evolving world. Right, because, I mean, now, I I, I guess I would consider myself part of millennia. I was born in 1983, but the generation after me is so more tech-savvy. Not as knowledgeable for in, but just more, I would just say tech savvy. Um, and I was, it's amazing because I was reading an article on it. Of course, I have twin girls, and they were talking about how kids, they're not as smart. They may be tech savvy, but they're not as smart, and how to keep them off social media. Because mine, like I said, are 11, and I try not to have them on all these apps. And I tell them, no, you're not supposed to be on these apps, but they'll go behind our, my husband and my back and still get on Kink, Snapchat. YouTube and I'm like, oh my God, can you can you really get off these sites because you never know who's on them. Um, and I was just thinking of that when you was talking about the young generation. It's just so much. I, who knows what's going to be like in five to ten years? Um, Absolutely. Right. They don't even know what a they don't even know what a cassette a tape recorder is. That's how fast technology has advanced. We don't even Everything have fast change. <laughs> well, it really has. Oh. It really has. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy you brought up the point about social media, um, because I think it's so interesting to think about the world that young people are facing today, 
And, you know, mm-hmm. I think while I do believe that a lot of the values and, you know, the things that matter to us are, are similar with generations prior, we're dealing with this novel intersection of challenges. So, for example, with social media and the Internet and this idea that everything we do can be preserved for posterity online. You know, um, there have been so many news stories where people take a photo and they post it, um, and that ends up costing someone their job or um, um, really impacting them in, in a way that, that will change the rest of their life because that photo is preserved there online forever. And it's the speed at which this kind of information can travel and, and reach all around the world. And, you know, you might wake up the next morning and the entire world knows what, what happened the, the last night. Um, I think that's something that's very new. And I think young people are still trying to figure out how to navigate that. Um, and, and there's really no rule book for this. Uh, we're, we're just sort of learning as we go how to safely and appropriately manage this new online world because it really is hard to not be a part of it at all. I, I didn't have social media, any social media until I entered college. And then I did start to open some social media accounts primarily to stay in contact with people from back home, my friends and family from back home, and also to be able to connect with people here at college. And for me too, it has been a learning curve figuring out how to best utilize this resource. It can be a great resource in terms of its ability to allow you to build connections, but it can also be used for inappropriate reasons or reasons you might later regret. Because again, all this stuff, there are digital fingerprints that don't go away. Um, and I think that's something that young people are having to learn. And unfortunately, some of them are having to learn it the hard way. Uh, so that's why I think it's really interesting for people of all ages to understand what it's like to be a millennial and what it's like to be a young person in today's world. Uh, so that's why I think the program is something for people of all ages to listen to, not only to be inspired by what the youth are doing, but to understand how they're overcoming some of the unique challenges that face them. Right. And speaking of challenges, I don't think, I, I mean, they, they have their few challenges, but not like we had to, because we didn't have, we didn't, we didn't have Wi-Fi. We know we didn't have DVR and on demand and fire sticks, so we had to work twice as hard. And it's like you almost have to literally like text a millennial to even get a message across because no one actually picks up the phone anymore. Everyone's on either Facebook uh, posting up. That's that's a billion dollar enterprise now, and we we have so much Twitter. You only get 140 characters. It's like you really have to you have to find ways to collect to the millennial group because I even have to find ways to talk to my dog. I'm like, oh, my God, or is anything connecting up here? And I forget that they're not from my times. It was just straight to the point. You understood. You you had it down. But it's like you have to find ways to configure this out in order for them to understand it. So everything has to be broke down. And and it's like I have to – we actually have to keep up with the generation. And, and I can imagine with the baby boomers, have to go through because you can't really get away without not knowing technology. I guess my mom is lucky because she's not interested in that. Just give her a phone. She'll call <laughs> you. She's not into the computer tech savvy. But as you were saying, Hannah, we can't get away from it. It's all it's surrounded by us. <laughs> and, and, and and it can be it can be bad in its own way, but it's best to learn it. It's, it's good to know it. it. We have to. 
in order to keep up with what's going on now, we need to know this stuff. Mm. We might say, oh, mm-hmm. I don't feel like done. I don't like the technology. Okay, we don't like none of it. Sure, you're from the 1960s. Sure, 1950s. But we need to keep up with what's going on. We have to. You got. You can't be in dark, the dark ages. Um, but um, Hannah, in in regards to that, in regards to your program, you're also a contributor to a forthcoming book project. Be the star you are, and this is for the millennials, in which you they share their stories about finding their way in this evolving mm-hmm. world. How did you come up with this project, and how is and how is it coming along? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, and, and I'll tie it back to some of the points that you brought up. You know, I think it, it is true that this is the way of the future. Tech is the way of the future. And it can be hard for some previous generations to get on board with it because it's such, it's such a novel thing for a lot of people. Um, but I think, I think one of the issues is that, you know, perhaps young people and generations who came before them do have do share a lot of the same values. For example, we saw the issue of healthcare really take center stage this past summer, and um, really rile up everybody on the political stage. And and to suggest, for example, that young people don't care about healthcare, I think would be grossly inaccurate. I think young people care just as much as as their elders about affordability, availability, and quality of healthcare because that's something that impacts us all, right? But it, it was often a question of how do we how do we share these concerns with each other? How do we communicate? And I think that's where the relationships can start to sort of wither. You know, we have to find platforms where we can meet each other halfway. And I think technology could, in fact, be one of those platforms. What we're seeing now is a lot of a lot of people of older demographics joining platforms like Facebook, where young people have been for years. So I, I think through technology, we might actually be able to identify vehicles through which we can meet each other halfway and and actually share our concerns with each other and through that we might actually find that we share more in common and we are more similar than we are different and um so in in within that framework this idea of really bringing people together to understand the concerns and hear the voices of young people i became involved in this book project called be the star you are for millennials and this book is um, another outreach service of the Be The Star You Are charity. And 100% of the proceeds from this book will go back to this charity, which serves women, youth, and families at risk through literacy and improved positive media. And in this book, you're going to find young people telling their stories in their own words. So in this book, young people tell stories about love and hope and triumph and fear and failure. In, in this evolving world. And so I think it's a great, for me, kind of extension of the work that I already like to do and giving young people a voice and allowing them a platform to express themselves. And this book is just kind of another medium with which to do that, which I think, again, is a great read for people of all ages. Uh, some young people take all these different topics and, and they share personal anecdotes, um, and it really gives us kind of a spice of life of, of how young people are doing today and what they're feeling and what their hopes are and what their fears are. And they do it all in their own words. Um, so the book is going to be available for purchase in late December, and you can purchase it on the website btsya.org. Again, that stands for btsya.org. 
and that's the website for the Be The Star You Are charity, to which 100% of the proceeds from this book will go back to. Oh, awesome, Hannah. I can't wait to get my hands. I cannot wait to get my hands on that book, most definitely. Um, But, Hannah, let's talk a little bit more about the millennials. Where do you see them going as maybe in five to ten years from now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm I'm very interested in this conversation because um, there tends to be a lot of debate, right? It's like who had it easier? you know, us or generations before us. And I think that's such a plain question. We actually have to, to dissect it and break it up into parts. Um, you know, the Internet is one thing, right? Like, it has totally transformed education and educational systems. You now, you know, back in the day there were blackboards, and you now have whiteboards called mm-hmm. smartboards that are connected to computers. So you could be you know, a kid in the corner of the classroom could be drawing on, on a pad and that could be appearing on the, the screen in front of the entire classroom, right? Like, it's totally transformed the way that um, that classrooms operate and I think potentially the way that we're going to start learning and, and teaching in our school systems. Um, and obviously, you know, access to technology has changed the way, for example, um, people or students in school do research and, and write theses. You know, for example, I'm, I'm involved in some research here at Harvard, and um, it's so much e- – I was actually talking to somebody who, when he did his Ph.D., there were no computers. So whenever he needed to find um, scientific literature or articles, he had to go to the library and, and search through journals to find the information that he needed, whereas I can sort of Google it. Um, but that definitely that changes the game in many ways, right? So even though this information is more accessible, it kind of pushes the boundaries of what what constitutes new and innovative thought. So I, you know, as the more that we're progressing in in this digital world and in technology, um, the more everything's changing in terms of what we expect from young people as well. I think. Um, and I think that can maybe contribute to a lot of the pressures that young people face today. Because sometimes in, in my conversations with young people, they say, you know, it seems like everything has been done, right? Like I, I come up with an idea that I think is original, and then I Google it, and I find out it's already been done somewhere a half a world away, you know, and maybe in prior years before the advent of this kind of technology, um, it wasn't so so easy to have this information so available and to understand just how connected all these ideas are and to understand just how challenging it is to to have original thought and to have an original idea that hasn't been done anywhere before in the world ever. Um, so technology has really put these kind of questions at the forefront for us um, to understand what it means to really contribute original things because it seems like everything um, is being done all over the world, and, and we're actually able to access this information so quickly now. Um, so I think although it's been a blessing in terms of this ease of availability of information, it also presents more challenges for young people in their education um, as they figure out how they actually want to use this abundance of information. Um, sometimes I think it can feel like just an inundation of information, like these overpowering waves, um, you know, in, in, because the internet is just exploding, exploding with information. So figuring out how to really parse it out and to take from it what you need to use and not being sort of lost in, in everything that's available to you 
on the Internet. I think that's, you know, kind of a hidden challenge in this blessing that is the digital age. Um, so I think we're seeing a lot of stuff really, really changing for young people today. And um, yeah. it's so interesting to break it down topic by topic and really think about the ways that it's changing um, for both the good and the bad. Exactly. I do agree with you, Hannah, all the way. Millennials, to me, they, they help us think more consciously about our surroundings. Everything that we do have to involve them. Even at my job that I work at, Marriott, when we come <laughs> up with something, it's more focused on them. Every idea is more focused on them because that's who we get more businesses with now, the millennials. Chick-fil-A, mm. their group come in. The group is now millennials. This is who's drinking the bourbon. This is who drinking the vodka. So every step, every idea is connected with them. One thing I do know about millennials, they like to work in teams. They definitely, they like to work hard, but they definitely will not work long hours. Everything has to be kind of quick and to the point. That's one thing I'm saying about these millennials. So, I mean, when it comes down to the value how are we going to be able to recruit and retain this game changers of today? That is, that's my question. There's a lot to be learned from millennials, whether on the fairway, whether we're in the conference room, or somewhere on these stomping grounds. They're just like the next generation of leaders. They're changing the way the game is played now. They're not doing it the old school way. We had to work hard. As you said, we had to go to the library. You had to look through that catalog list to find your books but now you could google and see where a book is located quickly it might be at emory university and you're at, and you might be at georgia state university but you don't have to go through all that let me go to each school to make sure this book you know that book is there so it's just uh, it's amazing how it has advanced but to me what you think hannah has it advanced so much that it made them lazy where they're not as creative or or thinking outside mm. that box to the point where it is no box? Mm. That is a really interesting question. And actually, it's, it's one that I think you see a lot of conversation about in the media, this notion that young people have sort of, they're sort of resting on their laurels and they're sitting on their thumbs. And, and um, they, they've sort of lost, lost that kind of entrepreneurial spirit. I will say... From my experiences, looking at the young people around me, for example, the young people that I live with in college, I actually find it to be quite the opposite. And, and it's interesting because it, I find it to be, I find young people to be actually doing really incredible things with, with technology and in the workplace in ways that are unconventional, in ways that are unorthodox. So, for example, you know, for a long time, the nine-to-five workday was the thing. And, and, you know, if you were going to get a job, it was expected that you work nine-to-five and perhaps overtime. Um, But, you know, for example, what I find interesting is that there's a lot of young people starting online businesses. Those hours are not conventional nine-to-five hours. Um, um, You know, for example, I have a friend who's really building up his online business right now, and he just appeared on, on the radio program recently and you know he talks about how sometimes he's having to contact distributors and um and get everything packaged and going and that could be happening those kind of conversations could be happening at two AM or at eleven AM or at noon during his lunchtime. These really unconventional hours because he's kind of starting this business that would be deemed unconventional if we look at it relative to the sort of stand up shop businesses that have been the norm for decades. 
Um, so I think because young people are finding really innovative ways to to expand their careers and um, to make use of this online space, um, their work schedules are becoming more unconventional. And you might see, you know, young people working later hours or earlier hours or working at odd hours or sort of a hodgepodge of hours as opposed to a straight nine to five and then and then go home. Um, so that's what I that's what I find really interesting um, to think about too. Um, just you know, has has everything really fundamentally changed, or is it just because we have all these new resources available to us, we are we're just nothing has fundamentally changed. But on the surface, making use of these resources, it seems that some of the little things like the time we go to work, um, the time we get out, that has kind of changed. Um, and, you know, for example, there are a lot of young people we <laughs> read about them in the news who, whose jobs are social media related, um, who get paid to, to make posts and put advertisements on their accounts. And, you know, they get paid to travel the world and, and to, um, to make these precious Instagram posts of pictures of them traveling the world that companies pay them to do so. And obviously, you know, their hours are going to be very unconventional. Um, so I think I think it's interesting. That's an interesting point to examine, and probably not one that we can blanket with a statement of you know one group is harder working than the other or more devoted than the other. So I think the circumstances are just so different um, mm-hmm. in terms of what resources that we're using and what they require of us that it's really so different um, that you can't compare apples to oranges. Wow, it's amazing. But before we take a short commercial break, I wanted to mention this, that I read in the article, by 2020, millennials are projected to be 50% of the workforce, and they're sort of 75% in 2025, and as they move into leadership roles, they will have a lot to say about the way business is ran. But we talk about how millennials are changing the game, but we definitely are changing this show. I want you to stay tuned. There's more to come with Hannah. We'll be talking about Hannah's work in HIV education and her rural health care. So stay tuned. Don't touch that dial. Thought it was over? Not yet. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Blog, 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 Talk. Blog Talk Radio, baby. It only takes a minute to find out if you may have prediabetes. And you can do it at doihaveprediabetes.org. But you're probably not going to. Nope. I'm sure you've got a perfectly good excuse. Kids, work, (laughs) I get it. You're busy. So what better time than now? Let's begin. Raise one finger if you're a man. Ladies, none yet. Oh, count in your head if you're driving. Now, three more fingers for everyone over 60, two over 50, one over 40, one more if you're not physically active, Another finger if anyone in your family has type 2 diabetes. Another if you've got high blood pressure. If you're overweight, raise another finger. Two if you're very overweight. And three if you're really overweight. You've just taken the world's first audio pre-diabetes test. And if you're holding up five or more fingers, visit doihaveprediabetes.org or talk to your doctor. There's no excuse because pre-diabetes can be reversed. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. All right, we're back with Hannah, who we have been talking to about her work behind the scenes at Harvard Radio Broadcasting. We talked about her forthcoming book project, Be the Star You Are, 
and this is for millennials, in which youth share stories about finding their way in this evolving world and how they are actually changing the game. If you're listening to the replay, please make sure you share this. The replay at www.brightsidewithtk. Hannah, I would love to talk about some of your work in the HIV education in the rural healthcare. So what is going on there? All right, Hannah. Hello? Yes. All right, we got our hand okay. back on. Perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, so thank you for, for that question. And, you know, when I appeared on the program a couple years prior, I was really interested in healthcare, and in particular, healthcare communication. I love the idea of taking research and healthcare knowledge that was coming out in these scientific journals and sort of um, sequestered among medical personnel and really taking that information and framing it in a way that was appealing to and comprehensible to the general public. So that's a lot of the work that I, that I used to do, and I've continued with that work with a slight modification. Um, what really, really drives me now is an interest in health disparities. Um, and, and I think as a millennial, that topic really interests me because I'm looking at the way that our nation and the world is changing and how things like wealth are stratifying and leaving some people with more access to some of the basic necessities of life and what I believe is a human right healthcare than others. And so a lot of my work in rural healthcare and also related to HIV education stems from this idea that there are, in fact, healthcare disparities and health disparities. And that's sort of the root of, of the issue. And we can address some surface-level things, but until we get at the root of the problem, which is that some people are experiencing different access quality of healthcare based on things like the color of their skin or their zip code, until we address that fundamental issue, it's going to be really hard to make the sweeping sort of changes in healthcare that we need today. Um, so, you know, as, as a quick example, the HIV education work that I did involved working with um, youth in some underserved communities to develop a sort of um, HIV educational and behavioral awareness program um, because the landscape of HIV AIDS has changed so much in the past decades that were really in need of revamped um, educational programs to teach youth about HIV and STI prevention and treatment and awareness. And um, working on that project has been amazing for me because I've really gotten to see how things that I, I really do believe are rights of young people, you know, to have access to this kind of information, how it's so dependent upon where you live and what kind of school you go to and how well your school is funded and the color of your skin and, and who you have access to in terms of mentors. You know, it really it begs the question, why is healthcare not just healthcare? You know, healthcare seems to be political. It seems to be social. It seems to be environmental. And it seems to be economical. All of these forces sort of work together to intersect kind of below the surface and to lead us to this thing called healthcare that is rife with disparities right now. Um, and so that really is the thing that I 
hope to work on in my future career, understanding mm-hmm. how we can iron out these inequities and, and level this playing field for people. Um, because right now I don't believe your, your zip code should determine what kind of healthcare or healthcare information you receive. I know, right? It's that it's broken down into that and people out here can't afford it. And then if you don't get, get at a certain time, you charge this amount. It really is. It's very sad. Or if you have this type of disease or function, they deny you of the health care. And it's supposed to be fair amongst everyone, but it's not. It really is. It's devastating. And it, talks, it is. It, it is it, very, it, yeah. Right. It, it, it almost like it, it talks it talks our perspectives. Like, what is it that we actually doing here? What are our core beliefs mm-hmm. now? What mm-hmm. I mean, this influences every life decision. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, it, it leads us to a larger conversation about kind of the stratification of wealth and, you know, how this notion that education is a great equalizer, that it puts us all on a level playing field. I think um, when we examine issues like this, it brings that kind of question back into light. And we say, well, look, look at all the educational disparities um, that that are going on in, in terms of, you know, the type of quality of education and, and also quality of healthcare and quality of healthcare education that you have access to depending on where you live or the color of your skin or how much money you have in your back pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, and I think, Unfortunately, when we talk about a lot of healthcare issues, this idea that different people can experience the same thing differently because of all these other factors, that's something that's often glossed over and overlooked. You know, I mean, so, for example, HIV is something that really interests me, HIV-related work, because I think it's a classic example of how socializing stigma and all these all these other factors um, have have so perversely impacted something for which we do have um, some really great available treatment. So, yeah, as a brief kind of historical note, you know, in the past two to three decades, our understanding of the virus has improved so much, and we've able we've been able to develop antiretroviral therapy, which you know, although has shown some side effects has been great in, in prolonging the lives of people diagnosed with the virus. Um, but what we, what we look at today, when we look at statistics, we find that one in two young black gay men are presented to be diagnosed with AIDS in their lifetime. Um, and so we have to understand that even though we have some of these treatments available and we have the medication, we have to understand the way that it actually spreads in a society and how people actually get access to this medication. Because some people do and some people don't. You know, and some people have transportation to these facilities and some people don't. So I think it's not enough to just look at kind of the lab research, although which I'm an advocate of. I've, I've engaged in lab research in HIV, but I've also engaged in the public health uh, research related to HIV because I think both are equally important in this case because one would be hard-pressed to find a disease so mired in socializing stigma than HIV-AIDS. Um, and it's a really interesting and unfortunate case study of how social, political, economic, environmental factors can actually come together so perversely to impede people from receiving the tr- the care and treatment that they deserve. 
be honest, I mean, Magic Johnson, he lived with it and proceeded to be a magical condition. And I, I mean, there are just certain things that I believe that he received that a poor person probably couldn't receive. He received the help because money-wise. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just going to be honest. See, it, it's all about the money. They have a cure out here. It's just, and I have, you know, done a little research. There are some people, I think it was one person that actually received the cure. They just want to give it to who they want to give it to. But you know what? I don't, Hannah, with this new millennial group, I don't think it's as scary like it was before them with the baby boomers. Um, Because, I, I mean, AIDS was not a big word before then when it was, but as it started coming out, people started fearing it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and knowing what it was, but this generation, they don't have that same fear. They don't, and mm-hmm. and I read it all the time on Facebook. People having unprotected sex, no one cares. People don't even ask questions. They just do whatever. You don't know what this person has. You don't know if that young lady is infected. You don't know if this young man is infected, but no one walks around. They walk around with a no-care attitude, basically. And in in the state of Georgia, we have I believe we have the highest rate of people walking around mm-hmm. with HIV. You know, it it's an interesting point um, because when I engage in some of the public health um, HIV and STI related research, uh, one of my goals was to understand how young people today view. HIV, even just as a term, because, you know, back two decades ago, to say that term could immediately elicit a particular reaction in people because, you know, they were so used to being bombarded with with that language. And this idea of the HIV epidemic felt so real because it really was what was being hammered, that message, over and over and over. And I think because of the development of this amazing treatment, that has prolonged the lives of countless people living with the virus um, to the point that now many researchers would say that people living with the virus can have, that is actually just a chronic manageable condition. Um, You do have to take daily pills, but it's manageable and it's long-term, but it's manageable. And before it was not manageable and a death sentence was almost certain. And now these drugs have really elongated the lives of people living with the virus, which obviously is a blessing but it's important to examine how that might have shifted attitudes about the virus and the disease, particularly for young people who did not grow up in a time when messages about HIV AIDS was, was everywhere. And people were so concerned with the kind of epidemic proportions of, of this thing. And so when I was speaking with youth about their attitudes of, on HIV and STIs in general, um, one thing that was interesting for me was to observe how, in fact, this understanding of HIV as an epidemic was not really there. This idea that it impacts massive numbers of people and, and, it, and this understanding of the history, the perverse history of, of HIV AIDS um, that was sort of lost in, in the conversations that I had with some young people. And I think that's really just because they didn't grow up in that time. Um, so I think what's important now is to make sure that young people understand how the landscape of HIV has changed and how to understand the virus and the disease in this new situation we find ourselves in, Uh, because that is what's most important for them to understand. So, for example, right now we do have antiretroviral therapy, and we we also have 
things like PEP and PrEP, um, pre-exposure prophylaxis, which can be taken by individuals who um, have believed that they are at risk of being exposed to the virus. And there's also post-exposure prophylaxis, which can be taken by individuals who believe they have been in contact with the virus in the past 72 hours or less. You know, we have all these sorts of new, new tools and ways to address the virus um, that I think young people, it's important for them to be aware of now um, because, you know, back in the day, it was really just such a scare. And I think a lot of the advertisements around um, the virus and the disease were really all about scaring people. But we're in a situation now where it's not really about scaring people. What we need to do is equip people with knowledge, the resources that they have access to and treatments that they can ask their um, healthcare providers about. And so that's been a great thing for me to be able to research um, the virus from kind of a public health perspective and to understand what really young people don't know about the virus and the disease right now and what they should know and how we can bridge the gap between those two questions. I know. I'm hoping that we can bring this gap together because this generation is scared to know that we can't protect them from this disease. Because some of them are so silent. They're very nonchalant, to, and they're making this a silent killer. It's killing you off. You won't even know that you even got it. And my message is to these young people out here, if I learned anything, it's, it's, it's that these young people, they're resilient, and they are fighters from every generation. But I need all them to strap up. It's basically, that's what it is. Some of them don't even know. My daughters don't even know what HIV is or or AIDS. And I think they they haven't they haven't gave up on the fight because I see most of them they post up on Facebook, but they're just not as cautious like they should be. They have well, to, I think they you have. know that that brings up a discussion: who does the onus fall upon? Um, you know, and I think there are three potential answers. So we live in this world where we have the Internet at our fingertips. And one school of thought says that this onus falls upon young people to educate themselves, into which I believe there is some truth. I also believe there's some truth in education starting in the home and parents being willing to have open conversations with their children about HIV and STIs and, and safe sex and um, pause, healthy sex conversations and, and having these really maybe difficult conversations, but incredibly important ones. I think um, some of the onus falls on parents as well to have these conversations in the home. And then there's a third school of thought, which says that we need to do better about providing young people access to um, safe sex supplies, such as condoms in, in the schools, because not a lot of young people have that support system back at home. And, you know, in these, in these past couple of years, there's really been interesting sort of merger between some of the responsibilities that people would say maybe belong to the home and those that belong to the school. And this really interesting fusion of the two to address um, issues facing young people. So I think in understanding, you know, what, what the role of young people is in the situation to educate themselves, what the role of the parents and, and the household is to educate young people, and then what the role of the school is to educate young people. I think all of these three um, um, sort of agents can really work together to make sure that young people are informed. I think that's the main thing, really scaring and, and terrifying people 
about the virus is not the way to go because that doesn't equip you with knowledge. That doesn't make you powerful. Fear doesn't make you powerful. Knowledge and information makes you powerful because it makes you an agent in your own life who can make informed decisions. Um, so I think that really needs to be the focus, providing the facts, you know, what what people have access to today, you know, if they believe that they were at risk of being exposed to the virus, if they believe that they were at risk of already being exposed to the virus in the past uh, 72 hours or so, um, to know that there are things that they can do and there are steps that they could take. Um, and it's really just a matter of time in some of these situations. Um, so if you have this information available to you and you know beforehand um, what you can, for example, ask a medical personnel about if you think you were exposed to the virus, um, that could be a matter of life and death because it, it could you you are equipped with this information and you can make a really good decision if you were ever faced with that kind of circumstance. So I think the focus really needs to move away from kind of the fear tactics that we might have seen a lot of in the past sort of two decades um, when the virus really scared people when when you know HIV/AIDS was a huge thing that was blared all over advertisements and billboards and uh, you know it was really just of fear-mongering to today understanding how we can actually equip ourselves with this information that we know about the virus. We really have progressed so much in our understanding of HIV, and we definitely have a long way to go, but we've made a lot of progress too. And so I think the focus now moving toward just understanding what we've been able to do and the kind of things that we have access to to protect ourselves and to stay safe informing ourselves, equipping ourselves, and thereby making ourselves powerful to make informed decisions. I think that needs to be the key. That needs to be the focus right now. And I think if we can bring together young people, their parents, their families, and also schools to make this the focus, I think we'll have set ourselves up really well. I believe so, too. And I think by you going into this work, you're doing a great job in that, too, Hannah. Cause we gotta make it, we gotta make it known. This is a worldwide issue that we keep sliding up under the rug, and we can no longer keep sliding up under the rug. Our babies, and of course, they're they're getting affected. Sex, of course, is the main thing, and they're doing it through social media. So we have to make it aware. They are. They getting text savvy, right? Well, Hannah, I I do. I really appreciate this information and these issues that we are focusing on. With our our youth, um, absolutely. I mean, it, this is troubling to me. These are troubling times. We find ourselves in troubling times. I see more and more on the news. It, um, besides just having this disease, we see more of them killing one another, going to schools, shooting up the schools. So we we send a lot of disturbing activities going on out here in our chaotic world. And it's usually the youth who are doing it mostly. And I'm just hoping we could get a grasp on all these issues. But it's gonna take gonna take a slow progress, but I'm hoping that it comes to it where it can be handled. I you know, I think young people have amazing potential and they're showing us some of the ways that they're using their potential and making use of all these new resources that they have access to. And I'm quite optimistic about the power and potential of young people to do good. And I think we're seeing a lot of examples of that uh, around me in particular. I'm so blessed to live with some incredible young people who inspire me daily. 
and, you know, bringing their stories to light has always been a focus of mine and will continue to be a focus of mine. And I would just advocate for us all sort of coming together and having some of these many conversations and some of them hard conversations. We can all sort of move, move forward and really move forward together. Um, but I, I, I do hold faith and I hold um, a lot of optimism about the potential of young people to really make some really great things for this world. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that Hannah and I could have got into because it's, it's, it's a lot. We talk about jobs, the security of jobs for the millennials. Um, of course, religious conflicts is another big one, Hannah. We know that. We see, we see more discussions from the millennials on this, that more of them coming out, whether they're gay, bi, transgender, and it's hard for them to actually fit in. You know, so we have that going on. Poverty. Oh, man, it's so many topics that Hannah and I could have discussed, but I'm hoping that we could get Hannah back on where we could talk more of these topics because it's it's so much out here that we can pinpoint and get down to it. But I know that our the show did prevail all the time in the world for it. But, Hannah, I appreciate you for just this information that you gave us today. There are, there are many conversations to be had, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to have engaged with you in this conversation today. Yes, I am. And I'm like I said, I hope that we could come back on where we could pinpoint some more target issues that is um, affecting the youth mm-hmm. as well. And um, the other generation that's coming out to the millennials, what's going to be in store for them when we look at maybe 2020 or 2040, you know, things to look amongst ourselves but once again Hannah thank you so much I really do appreciate you for coming back again to do this with us and before I leave you listeners from my friend Mary Ellen Signovich the truth of the day is this life shows up differently for each one of us at times you might look at someone else and wonder why your life can't be more like theirs all of our lives are different yet we are all receiving the same gifts we are learning the same lessons just in different ways Everyone experiences loss, grief, happiness, anger, fear, excitement, and love. All people have money issues of one kind or another, and everyone struggles with difficult choices. Even when it appears a person has it easy, the truth may be very different. Today, honor and value the gifts, life lessons you have learned and are continually learning. Express gratitude for all you have been through, good times and bad. Enjoy the day, everyone, and please, if you have any questions for Hannah, don't hesitate to email her at Hannah Hondell, H-E-N-N-A-H-U-N-D-A-L, at college.harvard.edu. These are things that we want to focus on, and I cannot wait for her book to actually come out, and we will be looking out for that. But once again, you have been listening to the Bright Side with Technique. Thank you for listening. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Bright Side with Technicia. If you like what you heard, tell your dad, mother, cousin, uncle, whomever. Be sure to check out the archive section at www.brightsidewithtk.com.